Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. Today we're looking at the rendezvous system of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. This is the second part of this episode, so if you've not listened to part one, I encourage you to do that first. When we left our intrepid frontiersmen, it was the end of 1828, and the rendezvous had broken up for the winter. Our trappers headed towards the Rocky Mountains, and the traders began the long march back to St. Louis. Once the spring began to thaw, William Sublette left St. Louis on March 7, 1829, with $9,500 in supplies and 55 new trappers. In these new faces, we're getting our first glimpse of Robert Newell, George Eberts, and the, the young kid Joe Meek. Sublette led his pack train up the Popoagi River, not far from present-day Lander, Wyoming. In early July, he met up with the clerk, Robert Campbell, heading his way with his trappers and all of the furs that Smith, Jackson, and Sublette firm employees had gathered. So Sublette opened up trade at this mini rendezvous. This is also the year that Joe Meek has learned how to read and write by now, and he begins keeping a very detailed journal of the life of the mountain men. Regarding this rendezvous, he tells us all were eager to purchase, most of the trappers to the full amount of their year's wages, and some of them, generally free trappers, went in debt to the company to a very considerable amount. After spending the value of a year's labor, privation, and danger at the rate of several hundred dollars in a single day. When it was done, Robert Campbell proceeded to St. Louis to trade in the furs valued at $22,476, or roughly $720,000 today. As Robert Campbell was headed east, Sublette headed up the Wind River to its source and then turned for Pierre's Hole, Idaho, arriving at the rendezvous on August 20th, 1829. In attendance were 175 trappers and hundreds of natives. This rendezvous is most memorable for the reappearance of Jedediah Smith. He had headed towards California and Oregon two years earlier, trading horses and supplies in this new territory. First, his party was attacked by Mojave Indians on the Colorado River, then again by the Kutesh Indians on the Umpqua River. A press release had actually been issued in St. Louis, Missouri on July 14, 1828, stating that while Smith and two companions were away scouting, his camp had come under attack by a force of 100 natives. The men were cleaning their guns and not prepared, and all except one man died from the attack. Nothing had been heard from him up to this point, so his bedraggled arrival at Pierre's Hole in 1829 caused a great many celebrations. In early September, William Sublette finally headed back to St. Louis, and the trappers stayed at the rendezvous site for another three weeks, probably partying with Jed Smith, before finally heading into the valleys to hunt. 1829 is the only year there was more than one rendezvous. Now, in April of 1830, William Sublette left St. Louis with a special cargo. The supplies were carried in ten wagons, drawn by mules and oxen, and he escorted two Dearborn carriages, each drawn by a mule. They brought twelve beef cattle, one milk cow, and eighty-one new trappers to boost their roster. 
This is also the first year that other supply trains tried to make it to this rendezvous to compete with Smith, Jackson, and Sublette. In fact, the American Fur Company supply train left St. Louis at roughly the same time Sublette did. However, while Sublette reached the Wind River Valley Rendezvous in the middle of July, the American Fur Company couldn't find the location, and they ended up giving up. This is also the first year that Smith, Jackson, and Sublette got ridiculously wealthy off of the alcohol sales. In fact, it was an extremely good year all around. They took in 170 packs of beaver pelts to St. Louis that fall, with a total value of $84,500. The equivalent is $2,737,000 today. Once their expenses were deducted, each of the three men still walked away with $20,000. And walk away they did. On August 4th, 1830, they sold out their interest to five of their employees, Thomas Fitzpatrick, Jim Bridger, Henry Frey, John Gervais, and William Sublette's little brother, Milton. The company was renamed the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. This is the only time that it was actually called the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Smith, Jackson, and Sublette agreed to continue supplying the trade goods as long as Bridger's Group sent somebody to St. Louis by the 1st of March the next year. So these five new owners had some really big shoes to fill. Much like William Sublette's missteps in the logistical end of the business, they were about to learn it the hard way. Thomas Fitzpatrick was the poor guy who got sent to St. Louis to get supplies. Remember, he had a deadline of March 1st. He didn't even leave the mountains until mid-March. And he only arrived in St. Louis in May. So he had completely missed the boat on getting supplies. Having not heard from the Rocky Mountain Fur Company people, Smith, Jackson, and Sublette packed up and left town. They went on a trading mission down the Santa Fe, New Mexico. So Fitzpatrick has to chase them down and arrange to have the supplies shipped out of Santa Fe. When he finally left New Mexico territory with this pack train, he could only get about 6,000 in goods. And this is for the 1831 rendezvous in Willow Valley. A bit of noteworthy history here. He would also bring with him a new recruit by the name of Kit Carson. And we will talk about him a lot in a dedicated episode. Now, Thomas Fitzpatrick was also very late getting back. And by the time he arrived, the trappers had already broken up camp and went back to their, their trapping grounds. The new owner spent the rest of the winter ferrying supplies out to their employees all over the place. So it was an important lesson learned. On top of these growing pains, the American Fur Company deployed more trappers to the Rocky Mountains, and the man began really competing in earnest for pelts for the first time. Wanting to avoid repeating the previous year's mistakes, Thomas Fitzpatrick and Robert Newell made sure to arrive in St. Louis early. In fact, they were so early, it was still the fall of 1831, and they had no furs or money to barter with. I can only imagine that conversation between Thomas and William Sublette as he tried to dicker for supplies for the 1832 event in Pierce Hole, Idaho, 1,350 miles away. Whatever he said, it worked. Sublette arrived with a fully loaded supply train on July 8, 1832. With Sublette and his crew of 60 came Thomas Fitzpatrick and Robert Knoll, trappers from John Gant's Fur Company, including a young trapper by the name of Zenas Leonard, 
traitor Nathaniel Wyeth with 35 of his men, 300 livestock, and a whole boatload of alcohol. As it turned out, it was one of the best attendants yet. They began assembling in mid-June. Nearly 400 trappers and over a thousand natives covered seven miles of the valley. Besides the Rocky Mountain Fur Company trappers, employees from Hudson's Bay, uh, American Fur Company, Northwest Company, and smaller fur companies like Bean and Sinclair, Ganton Blackwell, Nathaniel Wyeth, they all showed up. Can you imagine what this must have been like? It's estimated that 3,000 horses were grazing and a score more of mules and oxen grazing in this valley. That must have been something to see. These men are in direct competition with each other and shooting at each other 11 months out of the year. And now they're all sitting at the same campfires, sharing their food and drink with each other, retelling the stories they love the most. They're meeting new recruits, some of them for the first time. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a greenhorn Zenis Leonard, being in the presence of some of the toughest, most honorable legends in the country, sitting and listening to their tales, like Jim Bridger? Oh, must have been amazing. See, this is why I talk about history. It gets me so excited. Okay, back on point. Thomas Fitzpatrick had been scouting out ahead of this Rocky Mountain group, and he came under attack by a band of Grovent Indians. For anyone who ever wondered, it's spelled G-R-O-S-V-E-N-T-R-E, and it's pronounced Grovent. He ended up waylaid, and that story will be told in his own dedicated episode, because Thomas Fitzpatrick is a pretty amazing man. So after these companies have gathered and camp is set up, they send out a search party for him. He's found within miles of camp, starved and gaunt and nearly dead. The trauma had marked him so much that it permanently turned his hair white. And a celebration was had, at least once they decided he really wasn't going to die. So the rendezvous starts to break up about the 17th of July. Milton Sublette and a small group of trappers set out, headed southwest for the Snake River. As they go, they're joined by other groups, led by great men like Nathaniel Wyeth, Captain Bonneville, and other independent trappers. Now, they're only a few miles from the rendezvous site, and they decide to camp for the night and get a fresh start in the morning. As they set out the following morning, they notice two columns of Grovent Indians charging their way. There are women and children among the natives, not a customary thing when it's a war party. So these two groups are exchanging looks of uncertainty with each other. Did the Grovent underestimate the size of the trapper's party, or did they really want to talk peacefully? We'll never know. Some accounts state that the Grovent made a sign for peace to the trappers. Other accounts say that the Indians held a white flag as a sign of truce. The trappers decide to send two men out to see what these Indians want. Both of the men have mistakenly identified these Grovent Indians as Blackfeet. One man they send out is a flathead Indian whose tribe has been at war with the Blackfeet for generations. The other is a half-French, half-Indian man named Antoine Godin. His father had been killed by the Blackfeet. So the two men being sent to deal with these natives both hold serious grudges. You can see how this is going to play out. As these two men approach the Grovent, a chief dismounts and he walks up to them holding a peace pipe. He extends his hand in friendship and Antoine Godin takes his hand. 
the flathead Indian shoots the chief in the chest. Godin now grabs the chief's robe as a trophy, and as the man's body falls to the ground, these two trappers beat feet back to their party. It's at this point that all manners of hell descend on Pierre's hole. The Grovent fall back to the nearby woods. The women are slamming up logs for fortifications while the men try to hold off the trappers. The trappers are horribly outnumbered, and they're trying to keep the Grovent at bay while throwing up their own fortifications. Milton Sublette sends runners back to the rendezvous to get help, and as word of the fight blazes through camp, William Sublette and Robert Campbell rush to the scene with a veritable army of mountain men, Nez Pierce and Flathead Indians. The battle went on for the rest of the day with neither side making any headway. Knowing they were not going to win, the Grovent called out that their Blackfeet reinforcements were almost here. Fearing an attack at this now unprotected rendezvous site, the trappers fell back to Pierre's hole. William Sublette was wounded. Twelve trappers were killed. Countless Flathead and Nez Perce died. Of the Grovent, 26 died during the fight, including women and children. This would go down in history as the biggest fight between any native tribe and mountain men. And this would also mark history in a different way. Less than a week later, that Captain Bonneville would lead 20 covered wagons over the South Pass, the first wagons of the Oregon Trail. So while the Battle of Piers Hole raged, Thomas Fitzpatrick and Robert Newell and company were headed back to St. Louis with a packed train of furs valued at $58,000. This would be equivalent to about $2,020,000 today. Despite such a huge value, the company would find they're still in debt. Oh, and the American Fur Company supply train finally showed up a week after the trappers had left. I can't wait to do their story. Meanwhile, William Sublette and Robert Campbell had formed a new company, and they named it the St. Louis Fur Company. They held the contract to supply the rendezvous, and they had a bit of a stranglehold on these new owners of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. In 1833, the rendezvous site was slated for Green River Valley near Horse Creek. Robert Campbell and William Sublette were providing these supplies, and the wagon trains arrived July 15, 1833, with $15,000 worth of supplies. And shortly after, someone else arrived. I want to introduce you to this new person. A man by the name of Sir William Drummond Stewart has also appeared at the rendezvous with his 19 carts and three wagons full of supplies to trade. And while this man is a character in his own right, he has a friend along that is going to change the way people see the rendezvous. Up to this point, articles back east in the newspaper are typeset, and they literally have to verbally paint a picture for you in text alone. Any sketches are generic, and people must depend on their imagination to fill in the blanks. This friend of William Stewart is an artist by the name of Alfred Jacob Miller. When you see historical sketches and paintings of the Old West or the Mountain Trappers, it's likely to be his. His work is incredible, and suddenly these mysterious mountain men become a tangible visual thing back east. People from Boston to Virginia can now see what they look like and follow their stories. Beautiful sceneries and vast wilderness paintings start making their way back to the homes and the print shops in the East. And the people in the East are seeing this and thinking, 
Well, I'd like to live there. Well, before long, the Allegheny Mountains aren't going to hold them back. Now, a few important facts came out of this event. First of all, the American Fur Company actually showed up on time and in the right locations, and they tried to outbid the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. One account I read said they offered $12 a pound to the Rocky Mountains, $3. If that were true, I think they would have had more of an impact on the Rocky Mountains' profits, and they did not. The attendance was around 300 mountain men with nearly 2,000 natives. Now, of those 300 men, 12 were bit in the face by a pack of rabid wolves. One died outright. Uh, Three others slowly went mad, frothing at the mouth and running around camp naked. One gent stripped himself down, howled at the moon, and then ran naked into the wilderness. He was never seen again. And another was found naked in the shrubs, ranting like a lunatic. The other very interesting occurrence was found in the journal of 19-year-old Joe Meek. He is very distressed to see that four of his compatriots are playing a card game using a dead trapper as a playing surface. As for the profit margin, not too shabby. They took in 165 packs of furs at a value of $60,000. That's around $2.1 million today. Even if you divide that by the five owners, they still pocketed $425,000 a piece. But they saw room for improvement as well. They felt that the St. Louis Fur Company, and particularly William Sublette and Robert Campbell, had a stranglehold on them as the suppliers. So Thomas Fitzpatrick and Milton Sublette, younger brother of William, secretly meet with Nathaniel Wyeth and asked him to be their supplier. Wyeth agrees, and plans are made for the following year. So for the next few months, the conflict with the American Fur Company was so brutal, the trappers were trying to kill each other over prime hunting spots. They were sabotaging each other's traps. And now, besides hostile Indians, crazy weather, bear attacks, rabid wolves, these poor guys are ducking bullets trying to get to their trap lines. Many times they'd go to find their lines sabotaged and their catch was gone. On top of this, supply companies are trying to beat each other to the punch by getting to the rendezvous first and opening up trade to buy out the furs before the others get there. Elsewhere, supply companies and and fur companies are dropping like flies, and the bigger, stronger companies are sucking them up and getting even stronger. Well, William Sublette and Robert Campbell sell out their stock in the St. Louis Fur Company to the American Fur Company. Smaller independent companies are being hoovered up by this American Fur Company, and they're becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. Free trappers are being pushed out of the market completely, and they're being threatened by companies like the American Fur Company saying, you need to sell to us or else. Things were becoming so hostile that these five owners tried desperately to keep the location of the next rendezvous secret. This didn't work, of course. And in early June 1834, on Black's Fork of the Green River, near what is present-day Lyman, Wyoming, the first trappers start to gather. Thomas Fitzpatrick is camped at Black's Fork when a writer comes in bearing a letter from Nathaniel Wyeth regarding the supplies. He's going to be late, and he begged Fitzpatrick to wait to purchase his trade goods as per their agreement. 
Wyeth had left Independence, Missouri on April 28th. With him, he had 75 men, 250 horses, four missionaries and their families and their wagons, two naturalists and their gear and their wagons. William Sublette left Independence on May 5th, a full week after Wyeth did. But he wasn't burdened by these extra people and wagons, so he ends up arriving first. Sublette was understandably furious that the new ownership of Rocky Mountain Fur Company was trying to double-deal him, and he badgers them into buying his stuff. In the meantime, William Sublette arrived with the supplies, and these combined groups move up to Ham's Fork, which is a tributary of the Black's Fork River. Wyeth arrives a few days later at the agreed location to find nobody's home. He finally finds the camp, but by then the Rocky Mountain owners have been strong-armed into dealing with William Sublette, and they refuse to buy his goods. American Fur Company is also in hand, and they're trying to strong-arm the trappers into selling to their company. Nathaniel Wyeth is so salty over his broken contract and the fact that he nearly broke his neck getting all these supplies out to the middle of nowhere for absolutely no profit, so he moves his camp downstream. William Sublette calls in the Rocky Mountain Fur Company's debts, and he essentially forces them into insolvency. So on June 20th, they dissolve the Rocky Mountain Fur Company entirely. Thomas Fitzpatrick, Jim Bridger, and Milton Sublette decide to form their own company and never deal with William Sublette again. But it wouldn't last. It actually went defunct by August 3rd. The furs collected by the Rocky Mountain Fur Company for this year valued at less than $10,000. Poor Nathaniel Wyeth, he's just trying to unload as many of these trade goods as possible. He finally threw in the towel, and he moved up to Snake River to trade with the natives. So with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company dissolved, and all of their employees now unemployed, like vultures to the carcass, people like Nathaniel Wyeth and American Fur Company go into a bidding war, trying to hire these trappers on. While we do not have the prices paid per pound of beaver, we can surmise it was a vicious competition between these rival companies. In the end, the small number of fur packs that Thomas Fitzpatrick hauled back to St. Louis valued only $12,250. That's about $435,000 in today's currency, a far cry from the millions that they'd been receiving in prior years. With the Rocky Mountain Fur Company dissolved, the beaver trade's now starting to wane, William Sublette has had enough. He sells his assets and a fort that he had built named Fort William to a new partnership formed by Lucien Fontenelle from the American Fur Company and Thomas Fitzpatrick, Sublette's old partner. The American Fur Company agrees to supply the rendezvous and Sublette agrees to stay the hell out of the Rockies. It's also at this point that many people who kept such wonderful journals are no longer in the business, and we have to start looking elsewhere for resources. One such source is from the frontiersmen and women who are heading west to Oregon country. When Lucien Fontenelle brings his supply chain and 50 new men to the 1835 rendezvous in the Green River Valley, he's escorting two such pioneers, one Dr. Marcus Whitman and Samuel Parker. These two men were missionaries, and Dr. Whitman worked as a surgeon in Canada. So they were both out scouting out the frontier, looking to where they're going to bring their families in to form a commune in this wild, untamed West. Now, Dr. Whitman put his trade to good use 
for the trappers in need of medical services. And we know that a certain Jim Bridger had an arrowhead taken out of his shoulder. He'd been injured three years earlier, and he took two arrows to the back, being the tough guy he is. One was dug out with a pocket knife, but the other he couldn't reach, so he just broke the shaft off and left it there. One source says that Bridger was extremely intoxicated during the procedure, which I imagine was probably the best anesthetic they had in the mountains. Samuel Parker journaled that it took Dr. Whitman a long time to accomplish this extraction because of the hooked nature of the arrow itself. And Jim apparently had a great audience while having this procedure done, that both the natives and the trappers were both amazed and amused. There is one other story of importance that occurs in 1835 Rendezvous, and it involves Kit Carson. Apparently, there was a camp bully named Chouinard. This bully was giving the native girl singing grass a hard time, and a few of the trappers tried to back this guy down. As bullies do, it just enraged Chouinard, and he beat the snot out of all of the men confronting him. So Kit Carson steps in and has words with the man, and they end up dueling. They each mount their horses, Kit with a pistol and Chouinard with a rifle. Chouinard's bullet flies through Kit Carson's long hair, and it leaves a powder burn in his eye, but that's all. Kit's bullet slams through Chouinard's arm, and the matter is settled. Probably a good thing there was a doctor in camp. Carson won the duel, and apparently the heart of singing grass, as he married her a year later. The other journal entry of importance comes from the missionary Samuel Parker. He writes that the American Fur Company have between two and three hundred men constantly in and out of the mountains engaged in trading, hunting, and trapping. These all assemble at rendezvous upon the arrival of the caravan, bringing in their furs and taking new supplies for the coming year of clothing, ammunition, and goods for trade with the Indians. But few of these men ever return to their country and friends. Most of them are constantly in debt to the company and are unwilling to return without a fortune, and year after year pass away while they are hoping in vain for better successes. In 1836, our intrepid surgeon Dr. Whitman returns to the rendezvous with a new pride, named Narcissa Prentice Whitman, and more missionaries, including Reverend Henry Spaulding and his wife Eliza. Spaulding writes, The company with which we journeyed consisted of 90 men and 260 animals, mostly mules, heavily loaded. At this camp, we found about 300 men and three times the number of animals employed by the fur company in taking furs, and about 2,000 Indians, snakes, bonocks, flatheads, and Nez Pierce. Captain Stewart, an English gentleman of great fortune, and Mr. Salim, a German, traveled with us for discovery and pleasure. The order of the camp was as follows. Rise at half past three a.m and turn out the animals, march at 6, stop at 11, catch up and start at 1 p.m., camp at 6, catch up and picket animals at 8, a constant guard night and day. The intervals were completely taken up in taking care of the animals, getting meals, and seeing to our effects, so that we have had no time for rest from the time we left one post till we reach another. When we reach this place, not only our animals, but ourselves were nearly exhausted. Our females endured the fatigues of the march remarkably well. Your ladies who ride on horseback 
ten or twelve miles over your smooth roads and rest the remainder of the day and week, know nothing of the fatigues of riding on horseback from morning till night, day after day, for fifteen or twenty days, at the rate of twenty-five and thirty miles a day, and at night have nothing to lie on but the hard ground. Truly we have reason to bless our God that our females are alive and enjoying comparatively good health. The fur company showed us great kindness throughout the whole journey. We have wanted nothing which was in their power to furnish us. In 1837, Thomas Fitzpatrick led the supply train for the American Fur Company to the Horse Creek Rendezvous site, accompanied by trappers Etienne Provost and company, Sir William Drummond Smith and his famous artist friend, and more than 2,000 trappers, traders, and natives would conglomerate in this valley for two weeks of camaraderie and brotherhood. Dr. Whitman's wife, Narcissa, was said to be quite beautiful and had the voice of an angel. And when she sang hymns at the church service in 1837 at the rendezvous, many a rugged trapper was silently in awe, and she brought tears to their eyes. Another notable event took place at this rendezvous, and I want to share it with you because it, it brings these tough-as-nuts trappers back to being human. Do you remember Sir William Drummond Stewart, who brought his artist friend? Well, he had befriended Jim Bridger some years back, and apparently these two hit it off and were as thick as thieves, and he promised to bring Jim a present for him next time he returned from Scotland. Well, it was at this 1837 rendezvous that that present appeared. And at much to Jim Bridger's delight, it was a full suit of armor with a matching plumed helmet. It seems that Bridger spent the next two weeks clanking around camp and even led his men out of camp at the end of the rendezvous dressed in his new kit. Alfred Jacob Miller actually immortalized the moment when he drew a sketch of Bridger on horseback parading through camp helmet plume dancing in the breeze. I'll link it to the website for you. So the Whitmans and the Spaldings would leave the rendezvous bound for Oregon to open up the Whitman mission in Washington state and the Spaldings in Idaho, which each of these included a school for the local natives. Both Jim Bridger and Kit Carson would someday send their children to these schools. In 1838, the rendezvous was scheduled to be held in the Green River Valley, but Hudson's Bay Company had been pressuring the American Fur Company trappers relentlessly. To avoid conflict, the location was moved at the last minute to the Wind River. It's said that trapper Moses Black Harris wrote a message on an old storehouse drawer with a piece of charcoal. It said, Come to the Popoesia on Wind River and you'll find trade, whiskey, and white women. I find this entertaining. It's like locking your door, putting the key under the mat, then sticking a note on the door that tells you where to find the key. So the American Fur Company were charging really high prices for their trade goods, and many of these trappers were grumbling, some of them quite loudly. Add to that that the price paid for the beaver pelts was tanking as the fashion demand faded away. So many of them were still in debt from previous years and found they couldn't pay their debts or procure more supplies. They could see the writing on the wall. Many of these trappers simply pulled up stakes and slipped off into the night. By 1839, the writing was on the wall for all to see. 
A German doctor accompanied the supply train, and his journal shows us how badly the fur trade was waning. Where the supply trains in a good year would bring 50 to 100 new trappers to the mountains, in 1839, only nine accompanied it. The 1839 rendezvous was held in the Green River Valley, and unfortunately we have no record of how many were in attendance. In fact, besides that doctor's journal entry, we have no records at all. By 1840, the market had completely tanked. The final fur trade caravan left Westport on April 30th, 1840, bound for the Green River Valley. With this last supply train was Father Pierre de Smet, who would give the first Catholic Mass in the Rocky Mountains. He would go on to establish several Catholic missions and basically baptized his way across the country. Also with that party in 1840 was the family of Joel and Mary Walker and their five children. This family would be the first to travel the Oregon Trail with the intention of settling in Oregon country. While this may have been the end of the Rocky Mountain fur trade, it's by no means the end of the fur trade itself. Hudson's Bay Company records show they would sell 3 million pelts right up until 1877. So after 18 years of slaving away in the wilderness, what did our trapper have to show for his efforts? Monetarily? Not much, really. It was the fur companies that got most of the profits. In fact, some of them were farther in debt than when they started, primarily because of the way the system was designed. Ironically, when the gold rush hits in 1849, the same principles applied to all the gold miners. The companies get rich as the miners go in debt. It would be applied again and again in the coal mining regions of the East Coast. But the trapper did gain the camaraderie of spending a month or so each year at the rendezvous, exchanging news and stories, catching up with old friends and making new ones. They mentored the younger guys and idolized the veterans. They fostered friendship with the natives and recorded native ceremonies and lifestyles in their journals. Some of these journal entries are the only accounts we have of what life was like for the indigenous people in this day. And they had no idea they were doing so, but they created a model for a new generation of rendezvous lovers and history nerds and people like me. Today, the spirit of the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous lives on in us. When a group of trappers leaving Pierre's Hole Rendezvous in 1832 came under attack, the trappers back at camp rallied together to defend their brothers. Back in the 1980s, when a group of wayward bikers threatened a trader at a local rendezvous, they were met at the gate by almost 200 buckskin-clad men armed to the teeth. The bikers wisely chose to move on without incident. When Thomas Fitzpatrick was unaccounted for at the 1832 rendezvous, several search and rescue parties were sent out to find him. In the early 1990s, at a rendezvous I attended, a little girl fell asleep in a pile of furs in her friend's lodge, and she missed her check-in with her mother. The entire camp of 110 people formed a walking search line, and we located her very quickly. When Jim Bridger's clothes were accidentally ruined, leaving him with only a buffalo hide to wear, the other trappers rallied together to get him fitted into new clothes. And just this past year, in 2022, at the annual Eastern Rendezvous, a lodge caught fire and burned everything the owners possessed. The camp came together, passed a hat for donations and money and gear, and they replaced what was lost. 
these trappers that we've discussed here on these podcasts, they were not material people like we know today. They were often the epitome of minimalists, owning one set of clothes and one pair of shoes. They weren't about stuff. They were about moments. I'm sure, just like modern rendezvousers today, from the moment they left one rendezvous, they were looking forward to the next one. So that brings an end to our Rocky Mountain Rendezvous episode. I hope you enjoyed this trip through history, and I encourage you to check out the FursAndFrontiers.com website for awesome links to resources on this topic and many others. Join me again in two weeks for another episode, and thanks for listening, everyone. Keep your powder dry.
So that brings us to the end of our Rocky Mountain Rendezvous episode. I hope you enjoyed this trip through history, and I encourage... So that brings an end to our Rocky Mountain Rendezvous episode. I hope you enjoyed this trip through history, and I encourage you to check out the FursAndFrontiers.com website for awesome links to resources on this topic and many others. Join me again in a few weeks for another episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and keep your powder dry.